0: Hi everyone, my name is Musa, and uh, I'm on the staff team and my main brief is to um, lead up the charge of Qasmin, uh, which is our outreach uh, to Muslims on the campus. And uh, if you want, you can look uh, up page 91 in your booklets to find out a little bit more about Qasmin um, if you prefer to do that. Our topic uh, tonight is evangelism. The EU doesn't just value the gospel, but we also value sharing uh, the gospel. That's uh, what evangelism is. We believe that God has delivered the most important message for the world, the gospel or the evangel. Uh, That's why we call ourselves evangelical. And tonight, I want to talk to you in two parts. So the first part will be a challenge for those of you who haven't yet followed Jesus to consider committing your life to Jesus, just like uh, we heard Ira did earlier on. And the second part will be a challenge to all of us to commit to sharing the gospel with others, starting from, well, next week, really, when um, we kick off semester two at, at the campus. Now, for the first part, I actually want to focus on a verse that many Christians throughout history and all around the world consider to be at the very heart of God's message for the world. I know that uh, because, as long as I remember uh, at the Olympics and pretty much every sporting event uh, around the world, like the World Cup, um, I would always see a banner, even before I was a Christian, and uh, especially after I became a Christian, I looked out for a banner or a sign of someone holding up John 3.16. Anyone else seen that Um, or look out for it like I do? Or uh, it used to be a big thing um, uh, when I was growing up. It still is uh, from time to time shown around. John 3.16 simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. At the heart of the gospel is the love of God that has captured and transformed the hearts of Christians. And I'm hoping and praying that if you haven't yet made the step to follow Jesus, that it might capture your heart tonight and help you to take that next step. For me, uh, when I think back on how I used to live my life before I became a Christian, I knew that when it came to God that I I didn't really stand a chance with him. My life didn't stack up before lots of people. My parents let me know that. My uncles let me know that. Uh, When you come from a Middle Eastern family, uh, like I do, your extended family always stick their noses into everything. Uh, And so um, they would regularly let me know. If uh, If I failed in people's eyes, what chance did I have before God? All the things that God seemed to hate, I seemed to love. I could tick off many of the things that God told me not to do, And even the ones that I hadn't done, well, for me, that sounded like a good thing or a fun thing to try. Um, You see, the problem for me was my heart just wasn't in it. I just wasn't what I would consider heaven material. The good, clean religious types, well, they seemed heaven material to me. They're the ones who had a good shot at getting in. I knew plenty of them. My mum, my sister, who spent a lot of time talking to me about it, a few of my cousins and lots of people I knew from the church where my parents dragged me along to week after week, they didn't seem to do many of the things that I seemed to love to do. They had much purer hearts than what I seemed to have. They're the type of people that God would be happy with. They're heaven material, or so I thought. You see, John chapter 3, I think, is a bit of an eye-opener when it comes to working out who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Uh, So let's uh, quickly look at the passage in John chapter 3, and I'm going to quickly put it into context for you, and then I'll focus in on that uh, wonderful verse. Because John 3 begins with this very bizarre conversation that a man named Nicodemus uh, has with Jesus. You'll see there twice, in verses 3 and 5, that Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. Now we're told that Nicodemus early on is a member of the Jewish ruling council, In other words, he was a big shot in society and a big shot in religion. He had everything going for him. He's the kind of guy that um, if I was uh, walking with my mum on the streets when I was a little boy and she saw him on the other side of the street, she'd stop me and say, Musa, look at that guy over there, see him? When you grow up, I want you to be just like him. If anyone had the right to think that they'd made it, Well, Nicodemus uh, could have that right because he'd made it in everyone else's eyes. But Jesus says, even to him there in verse 3, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Notice that Jesus is making a blanket statement here. No one can. Uh, Jesus isn't saying here that it would be a nice idea or this is a good option for you. No, but even in verse 7, you must be born again. And that includes you, Nicodemus. And now, clearly, Nicodemus is baffled by this statement. That's why he asks his question in verse 4. Paraphrase Surely you're not talking about going back into my mother's womb, and. But Jesus, in verses 5 to 8, makes it very clear that the birth he's talking about is not a natural physical birth, but a spiritual birth. God's spirit works in you to give you a new life from the inside out. But still, the question is, how? That's what Nicodemus basically asked there in verse 4. How is it possible that we can give birth to ourselves? And the answer, and this is the point, you can't. It is impossible for us, but it is possible with God. You see, just like we had no control... No part to play at all in our natural birth. Uh, none of us ever came to our parents in the figment of their imagination or anything like that and said, OK, Mum and Dad, I think I'm ready now. I've, uh, I've earned the right to be born, so come on, you two, get on with it. Uh, it doesn't work that way, does it? No. Likewise, with the second birth, the spiritual birth, you don't do it, you can't earn it. But, and here is the point, God does it by His Spirit. Jesus is really hitting out of the park, you see, any notion that we can do something to earn our way to heaven as if we deserve it. We cannot buy our stairway to heaven. We cannot earn our stairway to heaven. God actually gives us the stairway to heaven. It's a free ticket. No charges apply. And if you have any notion, you see, of walking up to the pearly gates in heaven, thinking that you can get in because of your good life or something that you've done, well, Jesus is really challenging you here to think again because the only way in is with God's free ticket. You must be born again. But how can God make that free ticket available? On what basis and why? That's really the question. Well, I'm going to skip over the next bit. I'm going to cut to the chase. And uh, we're going to look at John 3.16, and because it, it gives us the answer in a nutshell. So let's have a look at John 3.16 together. It should be on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the first thing that should jump out of us, um, uh, to us, is the reason behind it all, which is God loves us. Now, I love you may be the three hardest words we ever say and isn't it difficult but not for God here it is written in black and white God wears his heart on his sleeves for all of us to see for God so loved the world and you realize just how great God's love is when you come to terms with who it is that God loves Because the world in John's Gospel, and you can chase it through if you like, in John's Gospel, is the world that hates God and rejects God. It rejects him and hates him severe enough to put Jesus to death. What the world deserves is God's judgment. It deserves to be punished. But what the world gets is God's love. You see, it is the world that hates God that God so loves That's what makes God's love so amazing. See, I love my wife, I love my kids, um, I love my mum, my family. I I love my fellow staff, I can say that. I I really enjoy their company and I love them. And I reckon I think I could love most of you here, I think, without too much difficulty. You seem very nice. Um, But what about loving your enemies? When I was in uh, third year at uni... I was walking down late one night from Town Hall Station, um, just down George Street, and suddenly, it was very late at night, I I was surrounded by a gang. The guy in front of me was huge. In fact, every time I think about him, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) And um, he was massive. And uh, there was a little guy. Uh, They surrounded me, the little guy behind, reached in and grabbed my wallet pulled it out and stupidly without even thinking I just turned around grabbed it off him straight away took it back and was holding on to it and this big guy in front of me just says give it to him and I just froze I didn't know what to do and I was fortunate just at that moment I noticed all their eyes moved to the side because there was a guy walking by and as soon as they moved I was very quick I dashed out the corner and ran as fast as I could and I made my escape. I was very fortunate. But I can't tell you for how long, for years. In my mind, I played over the scene many, many, many times. I'm sure some of you had done similar things. And in my thoughts, I don't run. No. I turn into a Bruce Lee kind of guy. (laughs) And I suddenly learn kung fu and i do this kung fu maneuver which kind of decimates and leaves them all battered and bleeding and begging me for mercy and i'm a magnanimous kind of guy i throw them 50 cents this is in the days before mobile phones 50 cents so they can call an ambulance (laughs) try to mess me up i'm going to mess you up i'm a legend in my own mind you see Now, the world of which you and I are a part of didn't just try to mess God up. They actually went ahead and did it. This is the world that spat in the face of God when he came to earth. This is the world that uh, whipped him and flogged him and and nailed him to a cross. This is the world that rejected God. And in case you haven't realised it yet, this world is, is you and it's me. It's even Nicodemus and people like him. It's every single one of us. Now, the important thing is, what does God do about it? What is God's reaction? You know, it occurred to me that the only reason that I didn't leave those guys battered and bleeding and begging me for mercy on the floor is because I didn't and I still don't have the power to do it. It's not just that I'm a wimp, but even if I did try at that time, I'm pretty sure I would have been the one left on the floor battered and bleeding and begging for mercy. But God actually has all the power in the world. And it occurred to me when I was thinking about this, that if God were in my position, that he could have done if he wanted to do what he wanted to do with no effort at all. And it got me quite fearful, really, because it is a bit of a scary thought, because I realised that if, if God were like me, and how many of us have said that, if God were like me, if I were God... But if God was like me, then he probably would have wiped me out many uh, times, years ago. And in fact, I can't think of a day that goes by where he probably wouldn't wipe me out many times over. Every time I do something wrong, every time you do something wrong that goes against God, or we just simply snub God and reject him for whatever reason it is, he could wipe us out just like that. Just like that. But God is not like me. Or you, thank God. The Bible tells us that Jesus, when he was surrounded by a pack of bullies who were about to arrest him and then laugh at him and and spit in his face and flog him and nail him to the cross, well, he rebuked Peter for retaliating with a sword. And he reminded him that it would only take one word from him, just one word, and thousands upon thousands of angels would come down and decimate those soldiers who stood before him. He had the power, just one word. But as he hung up on the cross, the word he chose to say was, Father, forgive them. And what the soldiers were doing to Jesus physically is what really each one of us does in our own hearts when we tell him that we're not going to do things his way. That I've rejected you as king, I'm going to do it my way. We're just nailing him to the cross. We're sidelining him, pushing him away. God doesn't just say the words, I love you, and then do nothing about it. He really goes the whole hog. And God showed us just how much he loves us when Jesus hung on the cross to die for us. It really is that Gospel Calisthenics again, isn't it? Can you do it with me? What is it? You'll have to help me. What is it? He became... Me, no, us, <laughs> and did that for us. Beautiful. God gave what was most precious to him, his one and only son. And I find that really hard to imagine, especially when I have kids. I have two sons and a daughter, and I just cannot imagine giving up any one of them for anybody. I don't care who you are. But God, we're told, who loved his one and only son more perfectly than I could ever imagine. And for all eternity as well, was willing to give him up to death for us who deserved his hatred, his judgment. That really is unbelievable. It really is. But what I want to do is take you to another verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this is the passage that we're going to be looking at in the next part of my talk. And that will help us unpack that just a little bit more from a different perspective. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's happening on the cross is that, you know, here is Jesus who has this perfect relationship with God. We know that he did no sin. He he was perfect. All he deserves is God's love and peace and commendation. And here is us, you and me. And what we deserve is God's anger and punishment because of our many, 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 many sins. But what happens is that God and Jesus were both willing That Jesus swap places with us. So that Jesus takes on our sin. And he cops the punishment that we deserve. And we take on his righteousness and we get the love and the peace and the joy that Jesus deserves forevermore. That has to be the best swap ever, doesn't it? And my question to you is, why wouldn't you take on that swap? to swap you know football cards in the playground and what have you and we would look out for good deals of what to swap but this has got to be the best what ever and just look how we benefit from it for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life if you believe then you won't perish do you know what it means to perish to be perishable I mean, most of you are in the prime of life. Uh, you're young, probably think you're bulletproof, long time of perishing, so it's hard for you to think about what it might be to perish one day, but let me tell you uh, what it might mean and how you can find out. If you, uh, if you decide to go to the supermarket, you'll discover that there's an aisle called the perishables kind of aisle. That's in the kind of fridge sections. And all you have to do is take your shopping trolley along and pick up some cheese and Milk and ham and cream or whatever, buy it, take it home, put it under your bed. (laughs) And just leave it. One week, a month, a year, and I think pretty soon you'll find out what it means to perish. It's pretty ugly, actually. And that's what we deserve. But the promise is that we won't perish. We, we deserve to perish, but if we believe in Jesus, it's not what we get. What we get is eternal life. We get what Jesus earned for us. In fact, the word isn't just we get it, it's we have eternal life. Not might have, no maybes here, but have. It's a certainty for you if you believe, and it begins now at the point of you turning to Jesus. You're born again, to use Jesus' earlier language. You become God's child and get to enjoy all the privileges that come with that. No holds barred. Let's just go back a little bit in the verse to a really wonderful part of this great promise, and it says that whoever believes in him, that is, anyone can come to God through through Jesus because of what he has done for us. Because Jesus says, whoever believes, and he promises that. The invitation, therefore, is for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, good or bad. It doesn't matter if you're a rebel like I was, you might be a lot worse than me. I don't know what you've done. But I do know that what Jesus has done far outweighs all the bad things that you could ever do. God says whoever, and he means whoever or you could be a squeaky clean kind of type the perfect type like Nicodemus but the offer is still for you because the only way and Jesus spells it out very clearly the only way into the kingdom of God into heaven is through what Jesus does for you all your good works combined won't work for you to get into heaven you need to be born again you need Jesus Friends, God's love, his amazing love, I think demands a response, doesn't it? I mean, how are you going to respond? Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Often we talk about the evidence for faith, and uh, I know that some of us require a little bit more evidence uh, in order for us to believe. Um, You do need uh, to know the facts about the gospel. You need to believe that it is true. And if you've got trouble with that, then... I'm more than happy to help you out and just search me out. I'll be more than happy to talk to you over lunch or dinner or whatever it is, anytime. time. Uh, and I'm more than happy to try to answer your questions and provide the evidence that you need or take up Rowan on his offer over lunch. But just do it. Don't let it go. Don't let it slip. It's just too precious a promise for you to just simply let by. And the stakes are just way too high. But believing in Jesus is more than just believing the facts. It's about trusting the person so that you're committed to him, so that you live for him, because Jesus really is Lord. He is alive. And it's so much easier to trust someone who wants you uh, to live for him if you know that they love you and if they're prepared to do whatever it is to make you uh, have a better life if they're willing to do whatever it takes to give you the best of life. Well, friends, God loves you. He did whatever it took. He gave his one and only son so that you, you could have the riches of heaven, the best of life forever. God's love calls on you to respond by believing in Jesus. Will you do that? Will you do that tonight? I want to give you the opportunity to respond by... Simply, during the next song, we're going to be playing a song. Talks about God's love for us. And during the song, as we're all standing, just simply move to the centre of the aisles and, and walk down the back and there'll be staff at the back who would love to help you and talk to you and pray with you about making those steps to follow Jesus. Will you respond to God's love for you? Let's uh Let's sing.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Maddie, I'm a third year studying engineering (laughs) and I will be reading the second passage for today. Um, It will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 to 21 and I'll just give us a few seconds to flick to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
0: Okay, well, we've been looking at uh, what motivated God to act in bringing about the very content of the gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son... And we're now going to be looking at the motivation, the reasons for why Christians ought to share the gospel with others. And my hope is that as we look at this passage together, that it might motivate all of us to get involved, beginning from uh, next week uh, as we return to university, or to encourage you to keep going in your desire to simply see other people become Christians. Because The gospel is uh, the announcement, you see, the news uh, to the world uh, of what God has done for the world. The world, therefore, needs to find out what God has done. Otherwise, as we saw from the first talk, they will perish without Jesus. God has done the work to save the world. It's finished. What still needs to happen is that the world, the people everywhere, need to find out about what God has done for them. The content of the gospel demands that it be announced to the world. And from this passage, we'll look at three key motivators, three incentives that Paul has for preaching the gospel. And I hope uh, you can see that they really come from the gospel itself. I mean, Paul's a very special, unique kind of guy, isn't he? So we shouldn't take everything that uh, Paul says about himself and apply it to us because, well, we're not apostles like Paul uh, was an apostle. But as we look through the passage, we're going to discover that the incentives that Paul has to inspire him aren't actually based on him being an apostle, but they actually come from the gospel itself. And he deliberately does it, I think, because um, I think he wants these things to inspire the Corinthians' interaction and therefore all Christians' into action as well. Because if you believe the gospel, then you ought to be motivated and inspired by and shaped by it like Paul was. Um, we're not all born to be preachers, maybe like Paul, but the same desire to see other people hear the gospel ought to flow through our veins, like it did for Paul, and motivated by the gospel – We'll use whatever gifts and opportunities that God gives us to play whatever role we can in other people hearing the gospel for themselves so that they might be saved. The three motives from the passage. Firstly, that Jesus is the Lord of all and he will come again to judge all and so therefore all should hear it. Secondly, that Jesus' love for all, that he died for all, compels us to preach to all. And thirdly, Uh, that God uses the people he reconciles to himself to appeal to everyone else to be reconciled to God. Well, let's look at uh, the first motivation. Verse 11 um, actually begins with uh, since then, uh, which actually connects back uh, to a fundamental truth, a gospel truth that comes out in verse 10, which says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus died for all, he is Lord of all, and he will judge all. Every single person who has ever lived will be judged by Jesus. We are all accountable to Jesus. And therefore he ought to be feared because he is the one who decides our ultimate destiny. That is, ultimately, we're all playing to an audience of one, whether we realise it or not. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about my performance, Um, not my father, not my mother, not my friends, not my boss, not my supervisor at uni or lecturers, only Jesus. It's he who will judge me. It's he who will judge you. So Christians ought to live in light of that fact. And we know that we'll get through the judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. But And I think what's on view, though, that here is the accountability of Christians for their involvement in the mission of Jesus. Because Jesus, uh, we're told elsewhere, gives all his people different gifts and abilities to get involved. Uh, think of the parable of the talents. Remember the, par- uh, the parable that Jesus told before he uh, um, died on the cross? where he told people he would be going away. And he says there, uh, Jesus gave to one five talents, to another two talents, and then to another one talent. And he expects his people to put his talents, whatever he's given them, to work, depending on their capacity, depending on what they were giving, to work until they, he returned. And he will hold them accountable, we see in that passage, for what they do when he, re, uh, he, he returns. Jesus doesn't call us to solo Christianity, where I can just simply uh, get comfortable in my relationship with Jesus, as if that's all that matters. No, but we're all called to get involved in the family business of saving and loving others. That's the expectation he puts upon all of us. Christians will be judged. That's a fearful thing. But how much harder then, how much worse will it be for those who don't know Jesus, who aren't yet Christians? So that's why verse 11, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade others. Persuade others. That's what you do, you see, when you're convinced of something, isn't it? Vegans try to persuade others to be vegans, don't they? Those who are convinced of climate change try to persuade others. Those who are convinced of gender inequality seek to persuade others. And think of the changes that have actually happened in our society, whether good or bad, it doesn't matter how you see it, but they have been really effective, haven't they, as persuasion comes in. My friends, there is nothing more significant than how people will face the judgment day. And therefore, that is why we seek to persuade them. We're not into coercion. We don't force others. I mean, I usually say at a baptism, if there is something that we could do for the child or for anyone that's getting um, baptised, if we could do something to, to save people, we would do it. But we, there is nothing. We can't do anything. God's done everything. We can only persuade others, use words, and have our actions match our words because no one likes inauthenticity. In verses 11 to 13, Paul is, is talking about himself, but he's doing it uh, to get the Corinthians to come on board with him because he wants what drives him to drive them and to get them on board uh, with how he goes about his ministry in particular. You see, uh, the Corinthian church uh, got lots of things wrong. Uh, we've been studying uh, Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, in semester 1, and one of the biggest problems that they have was how they had been captivated, really, and duped by dynamic, charismatic preachers and leaders who had the gift of the gab. Uh, They could captivate their audience with their rhetoric and eloquence. And in particular, these charismatic leaders made Paul look like a mug in comparison. Uh, He just didn't have the style, the gravitas, the eloquence that these guys had. And uh, if uh, if we're putting it in modern-day language, you'd probably say something like, well, Paul had a face for radio and a voice for print. Uh, Just not that impressive. Um, Back in chapter 4, Paul defends his ministry and he he tells him why he does the things that he does. And he he tells us how he goes about his ministry in particular. Um, You'll see it on the screen in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. Rather, he says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience In the sight of God. No gimmicks, no deception, no conning anyone. Just trying to make the truth as clear and as simple as possible so that people can understand it. Paul didn't put on a show, he had no show. No pizzazz, just plain, simple truth said with conviction. Have you ever cringed um, when you've taken a friend to church when the leader or preacher says or does something up the front? Uh, It's a dangerous question, isn't it? Because you could be cringing right now. Um, (laughs) But it happened with the Corinthians a lot, apparently. Whenever Paul got up to speak, the Corinthians were embarrassed by the show that Paul was putting on compared to all their other guest preachers that they used to have on regular occasion. But Paul wanted to to see the deep conviction that he had in the gospel and his passion to persuade other people of its truth and its authentic effect in his own life. He lacked style, but he had substance. That that is his message and his conviction. And he come back to chapter 5 in verse 13. If people thought he was crazy for it, putting on a humiliating show. He was happy to look crazy in front of others because he knew that's what God wanted him to do, just to simply proclaim the gospel in a very simple and clear way without any show. But if people were persuaded that it was true and thought this is a true message spoken by a sane person, I'm convinced, well, then he was more than happy to be serving them. And he wants the Corinthians, you see, to be driven... By what drives him to have the same conviction so that they get on board with the gospel program and don't get sidetracked by anything else, by shows and gimmicks and con artists. He wants them to have the same conviction and the same motivation. Well, the second motivation comes in verse 14. Have a look at verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Very clearly, Paul is compelled by the love of Christ. Um, Some people get hung up about the fact that fear plays a role in shaping the Christian life. Talk about hell and People say you're just trying to scare people into believing. But if it's true, if there is a hell, then of course you can't escape this motivation. Uh, there's lots of preaching and advertising, isn't there, that tells us that smoking kills. Oh, you're just trying to stop me from smoking because of the fear campaign. Well, yeah, that's the point. It kills. It's true. Same with COVID. If it's true, then fear has to modify your behaviour like lockdowns and masks and social distancing. Well, if there is a judgment, if there is a heaven and a hell, then of course fear of going to hell is a right and proper motivation for you in becoming a Christian and to live for Jesus. But there is so much more to Christianity than just being driven by fear. Uh, As we saw earlier, love is a major motivator and we're not talking about our love for others or for Jesus here when we're talking about our motivator for evangelism, no. But Jesus' love for the world. And I want to tell you that's an even greater, more powerful motivator than our love will ever be because our love is fleeting and our love is weak. There have been many times where I just simply don't want to preach the gospel to other people. Or I just feel, you know, weak in my own faith. And if I depended on me and my own love being the stir for my soul to get me going, then forget it. But Jesus' love is amazing. It's powerful. It's constant. And therefore, it's a constant motivator for us. It's Jesus' love for the world that compels us. The word for, for compel is a fairly strong kind of forceful word. And some translators put it, put it as us um, uh, or, or, or whatever it is. It means to kind of control you or hedge you in at every turn. Um, think of a, a, like a, a canyon where the water is rushing down and the rocks... Uh, kind of force the motion of the water to turn and twist wherever the rocks kind of... It can't go in any other place. That's the kind of compulsion, the compelling that we're talking about here. Jesus' love for the world compels Paul to go around persuading people to believe the gospel. Because the cross, you see, weighs so heavily on Paul that it controls his whole life. Every twist and turn he takes. And in verse 14, this compulsion, this compelling comes through that conviction, he says. Convinced, because we're convinced through him thinking about the cross. Since he was a gospel preacher, that would have been a lot. He would have done a lot of thinking about the cross. So it's not hard to imagine the kind of conviction that leads him to be compelled if you start thinking about the cross And I want to encourage you to think about it, not just tonight, but to regularly think, I don't think I do it enough, but I need to keep doing it. The God and King of the universe has come to earth, and he's died for everyone because he loves everyone. And if, like Paul, you think of yourself as the chief of sinners, you know, someone who clearly doesn't deserve God's love, like the rest of the world, and I mean... should be going to hell shouldn't i but i'm not going to hell because jesus died for me and jesus love captivates your heart doesn't it when you realize that and when you realize that well everybody else is in exactly the same boat that is no one else no one deserves jesus love but he loves them anyway and he dies for them all then it does begin to press on you that They really need to hear that. They need to know about it. They need to get right with the one who loves them. It will press in on you. And it will urge you and encourage you and move you to want to share it with others. For Paul, the love of Christ drove him... To risk his life, to risk life and limb to tell people about Jesus. It motivated him to go to unloaned lands. It compelled him to speak to anybody and everybody about Jesus who died for them. Jesus died for all. Therefore, is isn't a person who is off limits. No one is off limits. It's a universal gospel. Every race, every religion. Every language needs to hear it. Rich, poor, from the Queen's Palace to the death row cells in prison, Jesus died for all. But it's not just hearing and receiving this momentous news, um, uh, but it's also about being changed by it. See verse 15? Verse 15. This is uh, what it means to live as a Christian. To believe in Jesus. It means to stop living for yourself and live for the one who died for you and was raised again. It kind of reminds us of what Jesus himself said whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Mark chapter 8. Uh, we were talking about Bonhoeffer's book uh, earlier on. Well, Bonhoeffer put it like this when Christ bids a man, he bids him come. And die. Becoming a Christian means to die to self. We no longer live for ourselves, our dreams, our hope, our happiness, but for Jesus, his dreams, his hope, his happiness. Um, uh, Jesus was on about seeing and saving the lost, in case you didn't realize. Dying to save the world. And that's what he expects his followers to be on about as well. And Paul is clearly following in Jesus' footsteps. That's what he's trying to help them see, the Corinthians here. And he's expecting Christians, really, to follow his example because he's just following in the footsteps of his Lord and Saviour. It's just part and parcel of being a Christian. And just in case this sounds a bit negative to you, this whole sacrificing of your life for Jesus, it's not. Because Christians all around the world have found that Jesus is infinitely more worthy to live for than themselves. Isn't he? Jesus' dreams and hopes and plans and purposes for us are infinitely better. Because without Jesus we have such small dreams and hopes, don't we? um, And and terribly limited uh, happiness for ourselves really because we're so finite. We can't think big. But Jesus gives us far bigger dreams and hopes of new creation, eternal life and joy forevermore. That's what he gives us. Jesus is worth living for. He's worth dying for. And the small cost we pay in no longer living for ourselves isn't worth comparing. And not only does Jesus turn your life around, but he makes you look at the world and especially people differently. Um, we cannot look at people the same way again. Have a look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Um, The gospel is like uh, putting on a pair of glasses that radically reshapes the way that we look at the world, how we see ourselves even and how we see other people. Um, I'm getting a little bit old and uh, and my eyesight is starting to slip a bit. By starting, I mean la- the last 20 years, really. Um, but every now and then uh, we get sheets of paper, particularly in the staff team, uh, which look like ink blots. And I think we're here to do a psychology test. Uh, but it turns out that it's not ink blots. Uh, there are actually words on the page, and I really can't understand why people don't print uh, papers in 20 point font at least. Uh, but anyway. Um, now, when Paddy often sees me stretching out his, my arms just to try to get a, a gauge of what's on the page, he usually takes off his glasses and he offers me. And on one occasion, I put them on. And believe it or not, the ink inkblot suddenly became words on a page. It was amazing. Uh, it gave me a fresh vision to look at the page. Well, the Gospel is like that. It, it's like putting on a pair of glasses that give you a different way to look at the world. I can't uh, look at people from a worldly point of view anymore. Being an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer may impress the world without those glasses, but through our gospel glasses, we see things in the light of the cross. And it's all irrelevant. You haven't made it by being a successful lawyer or a successful doctor, or a successful garbologist, or whatever it is that you decide to be successful in. All that matters is whether you're living for Jesus or not. And if your eternity is in the new creation, then who cares if you're a janitor, or a checkout chick, or an art student? Um. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. I love you, art students, I shouldn't... Um, in fact, if there's one degree that I could go back and do, it would be arts. Um, all that matters, really, is whether you're trusting in Jesus or not. That's really all that matters. I used to tell my children growing up, actually, I didn't really care what they did at uni. Um, all I wanted them to be was Christians. I didn't care if they ended up spending their life as a janitor, working as a janitor, as long as... They ended up being a king in heaven. But the last thing I wanted for them to be was a king on earth and up up in hell. The cross changes the way that you look at people, at the world, at life in general. How do you see your friends? How do you see your family? How do you see your co-workers? Put your gospel glasses on. And you will realise that the only thing that really matters in the end is whether they follow Jesus or not. When you think of your uni friends, put your gospel glasses on. And it really doesn't matter whether you study engineering or you're a doctor or a lawyer or, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. What ultimately matters is whether they are new creations or not. And you will want nothing more than for them to be in the new creation. You'll want nothing more for them than to be following Jesus. We're running out of time, so I'm going to go quickly through verses 18 to 21. I'm just going to summarize it for you. But clearly in those verses, it's those who are reconciled who are commissioned to the ministry of reconciliation themselves. So reconciliation, remember, is about um, making enemies friends again, putting hostility to rest, and making peace by making amends. And it reminds us that the world really does hate God. They're enmity with God, and that God is right to be angry with the world. And usually it's the... uh, the, um, the party it, uh, who has offended uh, someone that tries to make amends, yeah, to, to make the reconciliation happen. But even though it was God who was wronged, he is the one who took the initiative, he's the one who reached out to us and did the incredible in Christ to reconcile us to himself. And the point is that God uses those who've accepted this re- uh, reconciliation, the ones who benefited from it, who understand it, uh, to be the ones who appeal to others. And I think the appeal to others is often um, on the basis that we've understood it, that we appreciate it, and we want you to experience the same thing that we have. God is incredible. He's wonderful. He's reached out to us. He's reaching out to you. And so we urge them. We beg them. We appeal to them. Do you recognize what's at stake? God has done it all. So be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. My friends, I hope that you can see that the motivation and incentive for evangelism really flows from the gospel itself. It's the gospel itself. It's what God has done, why he did it, and what's at stake for others that compels us as Christians to tell the world about Jesus. And we want to see people living for Jesus because he deserves it. He deserves it. He deserves to be honoured and loved and worshipped and respected and appreciated for what he has done for them. And that's why we implore them to turn to him and worship him and acknowledge him because he deserves it. Jesus died for all and therefore all should live for him. And God desires for people to be reconciled to himself and he wants us to persuade and urge others to accept the offer of peace. God has gone to the extremes. He's not asking us to necessarily go to the extremes, although many Christians have been compelled to go to the extremes. And they were happy to do it because God had gone to the extremes for them. Friends, I hope you can see why the EU values Evangelism, And my prayer is that it's not just an EU value, but it becomes your value too. The EU, eval- EU values evangelism, and that's why it's got equipped courses to help you grow in your evangelism, uh, your fervour, your skills. We've got Jesus-centred conv- uh, conversations. We've got engaging uh, with Muslims, uh, crossing cultures, engaging the world. These are really good courses that you'll be hard-pressed to find the better of them uh, in any church that you go to. I encourage you to take advantage of these while you can. Do it next semester if you can. And once equipped, you can sign up for things like Cuzzmen or uh, E-Team and Focus to get involved in the doing it on campus. The best way is to just get out there and start speaking to your friends and then trying to get more and more skills to speak to others as well. Make object one of the EU your first objective as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Will you seek to present students with the Christian gospel and to lead them to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we would want for everybody as well. We're, um, We're going to spend a bit of time in prayer, but I think... Rowan and Jody are going to direct us in that.